Um, uh, John Calvin famously wrote, you know, Jeremiah famously wrote that the heart is wicked, deceitful, desperately wicked. It, it, it didn't have a lot of good things to say about the heart. John Calvin picked up on that and said, uh, described the heart as uh, a, an idol factory, a perpetual idol factory. Now, that's not a factory that doesn't do anything. It's a factory that makes idols, things to worship. I-D-O-L, not I-D-L-E. And you sort of the heart conceives and the hands give birth, he went on to say. Basically, the idea being that our hearts are constantly devising things to worship, things to give our honor and glory to uh, rather than God, in the place of God, of constantly making idols. If that's true, and this, that's certainly the picture here, because we're prone to creating our own idols uh, of our own liking in perhaps our own image or whatever image we choose to make them in, uh, because we are prone to wander, prone to give ourselves to the idols that we create, this passage has much to say to us. Uh, first of all, um, notice we need a mediator because our guilt is great. It's, it, I, I get it, right? I mean, we, we forget, right? We, we sometimes, we lose track of commitments we've made, right? We lose track of things we've, we've committed to and, and, just, and said, well, I'm going to do this. And, and time lapses and sometimes we lose track of that commitment, <laughs> For you and me, we've been sort of on the mountain, as it were, with Moses and God meeting together for months. Not four months, but for months. Because we, we literally took one week for each of the Ten Commandments. There was two and a half months just like that, gone in our time lapse. That's not their experience. And, and because we've done that, we've kind of lost track of just how long it's been. In a lot of ways, this setting, this chapter, takes us sort of from the mountain and says, now, dear reader, let me tell you what's been going on down at the foot of the mountain. While you have been hanging out with God and Moses on Mount Sinai, let me bring you, reader, up to speed on what's been going on down in the camp. And so the reality is Moses spends about six weeks on the mountain. That means this happened sometime faster than that. From the time Moses went up, less than six weeks, this event takes place. And notice, flip back with me to chapter 24. And let me just show you something. Let me remind you of the words that came out of the mouths of the people of Israel. In chapter 24, look at verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the, that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Look at verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. It took them less than six weeks to forsake that vow. 
And this calf, though, isn't just the work of forgetful people. It's actually the work of actively rebellious people. And what I want to do is I want to trace for you, if you, will, if you will bear with me, I want to trace with you all of the commandments that Aaron and Israel break just in the making of this golden calf. Notice, first of all, and we'll just take them in the order of the commandment, not so much in the order of the passage itself. But notice verse 1, the first commandment. The people come to, Moses, uh, come to Aaron and they say, look, we need gods. We need a God that has brought us out of Egypt. We need a God to lead us. We need someone to sort of take the lead for us um, to, to, that we can follow, that we can follow into um, the promised land, if you will. They come to Aaron and they demand gods. The word is plural. God told them in the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me or before my face or beside me or other than me. And so if there's a plural, you are already breaking the first commandment. He alone is the one who's created and sustains his people. He alone is the one is, that is worthy of our worship and our praise. He alone is the one who brought them out of Egypt and, and is bringing them, taking them to the promised land. He alone is worthy of all praise and glory. And when we break the first commandment, we are replacing the one true God of creation with someone or something else. And that's, in essence, what's going on in this passage is the people want to replace both God and Moses, as we will see. So they're guilty of, of breaking the first commandment, of replacing God with some other God. Give us gods who will go before us. You know, it's funny. Um... Parents, I'm sorry. I, I know sometimes there are words you really don't want your kids hearing, um, but there's no better way to say it, quite honestly. Um, sin will make us idiots. Sin will make us do absolutely ins. I know, I'm not really worried about it. I, that Make us do absolutely the stupidest things we could possibly do. We don't, we don't make connections. We don't connect dots. We don't think through the, the sort of the logic of, um, of our rebellion. And yet here, the people are asking for gods. But they think that whatever they make can take them to the promised land. Wait, hold on a second. You're greater than this is. You made it. And now you're going to follow the thing you created? Oh, and by the way, if this God isn't the God, then why do you think you're going to the promised land anyway? They, they don't think through the, the logic of the failures of, of their rebellion. So they're guilty of violating the first commandment. They're also guilty of breaking the second commandment, because not only are they demanding a new group of idols, a new group of gods, but they want something that they can see. 
They want something that they have made. They want something that, that has been fabricated by human hands. They want to replace God with an image, an express violation of the second commandment. You know, we said this before, the, the second commandment doesn't, doesn't, doesn't forbid duck decoys. Right? It forbids worshiping a duck or making something and then saying that is God. This is the image, the, the visible, physical, tangible expression of the one true God who brought us out of Egypt. And so they come in verse 4, in verse 1, demanding gods. They want Aaron to make something. So they're looking for something physical. And of course, verse 4, Aaron makes a calf. They want at best, even if they want to represent the one true God in this calf, it's still a violation of the second commandment. But I think there's more going on than that. He even ascribes to this calf the work that God has done for them. Did you notice verse 4? You receive their gold, make this thing. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The third commandment. The person and work and character and attributes of God ascribed to a golden calf that he just made. A violation of the third commandment. This thing didn't exist and then all of a sudden, 5, 10, 30 minutes later, it does exist. And now he says, this is the thing that brought you out of Egypt. Well, it wasn't there in Egypt. It hasn't been around. I mean, you literally just created this thing. And you're ascribing to it the work of the one true God. Anytime we take God's name, his works, his attributes with lightness, anytime we treat them as though... They have no meaning. Even anytime we, we give to some other created thing, that which rightly belongs, or belongs to God or describes God is a violation of the third commandment. You know, you know what it's like. You, you've, you know what it's like to have done work and for work to be turned in and, and you not to get the credit that you deserve. Like, like that scene in Seinfeld when Kramer had invented a perfume, a cologne that smelled like the beach. Pitched the idea to Calvin Klein who said, that's the craziest thing we've ever heard. And within a year, they had a scent called Ocean. And he went crazy. There's, this, this was the work. I literally pitched this to them. Imagine when we do that to God. God, we know that you've done these things, that you're holy, that you alone are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and you're being wisdom, power, the rest of the catechism question. We know that you're the one that brought us out of slavery, out of Egypt, out of bondage. But we're going to give that credit to something else. We're going to give that honor to someone else. So the first three commandments are broken. 
The fifth commandment. Look back at verse 1. The fifth commandment gets turned upside down. There is, according to God's command, an appointed um, relationship with, between Moses, Aaron, and the people. There are clearly God-ordained leaders, and Israel, the people, are supposed to follow. But what do they do in verse 1? The people come to their leader and say, we demand this. And the leader says, okay. The leader who is supposed to say, no, we're not doing that. That's going to break, I don't know how many commandments. He should lead them to righteousness. Instead, he allows this fifth commandment to get flipped on its head. Notice their command in verse 1, up. The short brevity of it all. The, the starkness of it. Up, make us gods that we that go before us. Not only that, but notice what they said about as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. You hear the way they dismiss the leader that God gave them? The, lead, the way that they just kind of with, with the wave, you know, the, the flip of their hand. As for this Moses guy, you know, the guy that brought us up out of Egypt. We don't know what's come of him. We don't know what's, what's going on with him. As for this fellow Moses... You know, God called Moses. This was kind of a big deal in the first three or four chapters of Exodus, right? That God would call Moses to lead his... Moses says, well, hold on a second. You don't... I'm not the one. And you're going to be the one to lead them out. You are going to be their leader. You are going to be the one that takes them out of bondage and leads them to the promised land. And now they not only want to replace God, but they want to replace their God-ordained leader. And so they, they talk about him with derision and dismissiveness, if you will. Notice what happens after they've made this calf and they celebrate. They have a feast. They offer, offer burnt offerings and peace offerings to this calf. And they have this big giant feast. And the people, verse 6, sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now here's the thing. That word rose up to play... It could mean literally that they were dancing. And in verse 19, Joshua seems to indicate that he sees dancing. That word is also used in the Bible to talk about just laughter. It's also used in the Bible to talk about um, seventh commandment matters. That, That with pagan worship comes a variety of of Pagant, aberrant sexuality. And it may be that that's an indicator that they ate, they drank, and then they engaged in these sexual activity, uh, activities of, of associated with pagan worship. It's certainly the case that they've come from a place where they know what it looks like to have animals as their gods. And Stephen in Acts 7, when he recounts Israel's history before he gets stoned, he actually tells, says, look, what they are doing is they're going back to Egypt. They're forsaking God. They're forsaking Moses because they want to go back to Egypt. And so they've created a God like the ones they remember from the good old days 
in, you know, slavery, bondage, no days off, no holidays, no breaks, mistreatment, the good old days. And so it's entirely possible that that this is actually a picture of of pagan worship practices showing up in this feast around this golden calf. Finally, verses 22 and 23. um, Notice what happens. Moses comes and confronts Aaron. So what's going on here? And look at what Aaron says in verse 22 and 23. Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. They said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So far, all that's true. Um, I lost my place just like that. I looked away. For they said to me, make us gods. And we don't. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. They gave it to me. I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Mom, I know I have chocolate all over my hands, but I don't know how chocolate got on the couch. I know we were playing baseball in the house. I don't know how the vase broke. I don't know. I just, it, just, it just came out. It's a lie. He's, he's misrepresenting God's people. He's breaking the ninth commandment. And so a quick survey of just the act of making this golden calf... Six of the ten commandments at least broken in this process. You know, it's easy for us to think. How silly. I mean, who really? Does anybody really like take a bunch of gold and fashion a calf and actually worship that? Like we we miss sort of dis, uh, dismiss the passage. Like, well, I would never do anything like that. And yet we come and confess our sin every Sunday, and say that we sin daily in thought, word, and deed. That we violate your holy commandments daily. How how easy it is for us to turn anything of this world into a god that we will serve, into a god that that we will worship at all costs. And then somehow spin it in a way to make it sound like we were the guilty. We, we were mistreated. That it wasn't our fault. That it was somebody. You know, God, the woman that you gave me. That's, that's what we do. Commandments fall like that. And we don't even notice. We say, well, I would never make a calf. No, but what are the things that you have in your life that you... Worship that you will give this kind of attention to. We're guilty. We need a mediator because our guilt is great. We also need a mediator because God's wrath is great. What? Children's catechism. Okay, listen. Let me encourage you. Catechisms are phenomenal teaching tools. And I don't mean just for kids. They are a great tool. Uh, what does every sin deserve? If you know the children's catechism, the wrath and curse of God. That's just summarizing what the Bible says everywhere about what sin deserves, right? The wages of sin is death. We deserve the wrath and curse of God because of our sin. Well, if that's the case, 
How are we going to solve that problem? If God's wrath is right and true and just and deserved, then we have a problem. Moses is up on the mountain. He has no idea what's going on. Um, and, and it's God, God actually sort of brings him into the loop in verse 7. Um, you know, uh, Moses, um, parents, you ever have those moments where your children are wonderful? Okay, that, I guess we could stop there with the question. Humor me. Uh, do you ever have those moments where your children are just being wonderful? They're sweet. They're, having, they're actually at the grocery store with you and they're helping and they're, they're, they're being kind and sweet. Or they're, they're treating their siblings with, with love and care. And you say, how wonderful my kids are. And then they act crazy. And then they misbehave. And you say, would you do something about your children? Did you notice what God said to Moses? Hey, Moses, your people. Hosea, not my people, in your head. These are your people, Moses. You brought them out. You brought them out of Egypt. You're the one that got them this far. And then, in essence, he says, uh, Moses, I'm going to need you to step aside. And, and, and almost, I mean, okay, if this, was, if this were a movie... Like if this were some sort of movie scene, literally the, the you know the, the I don't know the 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 big hulky beater upper guy whatever would be moving someone out of the way and cracking his knuckles, because it's that indicator to you watching the movie, something's gonna happen, somebody's gonna get hurt, and you have that sense when you read verses seven to ten. Um. Go down, Moses, because your people that you brought out of the land, they've corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf. They've worshipped it. They've said these are your gods. They're a stubborn, stiff-necked people. Now, verse 10, move. I'm going to need you to step aside. Because here's what we're going to do, Moses. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to wipe them out. And then, and then Moses... We're going to make a great nation out of you. Let's, let's, let's forget everything that's gone before. These guys are stubborn, stiff-necked people, and they're just not going to change. So I'm going to destroy them, and I'm going to make you a great nation. It's, it's, it's recognition of the guilt of cosmic treason. When you commit cosmic treason, that's a death penalty. That's a death sentence. What does every sin deserve? The wrath and curse of God. And so we have this picture then in verses 7 to 10 of, of the deserved wrath and curse of God. The judgment that He in His righteous anger is right to have against us. We need a mediator because our guilt is great. We need a mediator because our wrath is, because God's wrath is great. You know, there's something going on in verse 10. There are really two things going on in verse 10. One is the, the um, step aside, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to consume them. But you do hear the test, right? There's a, there's a, there's a test there for Moses. Moses could, I mean, okay, 
if, if Moses is an egomaniac, he steps aside and says, I like this idea. Now, these, these guys become the, the children of Moses, not the children of Israel. You mean my name goes down in history as the, the father of all these people? Yes, God, do it. Let's go. I'm going to watch. Hang on. Let me pop some popcorn. Right? If he's an egomaniac, if he's that... There's a test there. But implied in that test is also um, an instruction to Moses not to move out of the way. Implied in that test is, will you be their mediator? He's, he's text, testing Moses because that's exactly what Moses has been called to do and to be for Israel. We need a mediator because our guilt is great. We need a mediator because God's wrath is great. And lastly, we need a great mediator. You know, you think about the work of a mediator. If you've ever had to... There, there's official terms, right? But then it's just sort of normal everyday life. And, and you feel like you're going back and forth between people who don't like each other, who are at odds with each other. And you have to somehow figure out how to speak for each person to the other person. Right? That's why we have a priest. That's why we have a prophet. And Moses does both in this passage. The work of the priest is to speak to God on behalf of the people. Well, notice what Moses does in verses 11 to 14. He takes on the, the role, the function of a priest. And he, he pray. Okay, he's talking to God. He's, he's, it's, it's prayer. We're going to call it prayer. Um, regardless of what the relationship looks like on the mountain, that doesn't matter. Notice the appeals, the three appeals that Moses makes as he intercedes, as he serves in this role of a mediator. First, verse 11, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? He reminds God that there's, an, there's a relationship here. You have a, a relationship with these people. They're your people and you brought them out of the land of Egypt. In fact, later on, he'll say, look, remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants whom you swore. He reminds God, look, you have a you have a relationship with these people that you don't have with anybody else. This isn't just a, a long-standing historical relationship. It's a covenantal one. You've made promises to your people. And these promises are the basis of this relationship. And so he reminds God of that relationship. But then he turns, verse 11, to God's work of redemption. You brought them out. You saved them. I didn't do anything. I didn't defeat any of the enemies along the way. I didn't give any commandments. I didn't, honestly, God, I didn't even want the job. Right? Go back and read the first few chapters. He didn't want the job. I'm not worthy or capable of delivering these people. God, these are your people. So because of your relationship, because of your work of redemption, because you have made a promise, a vow to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, you swore that you would deliver them and give them this land. And then finally, he appeals to God's reputation. What are the, what are the Egyptians going to say? 
<laughs> Look at those people. They all died out there among the mountains. They all died out there in the wilderness. What kind of God is it? He brought them out of Egypt to destroy them. You're going to, God, drag your own name through the mud if you go through with this. Hold on. Do you remember why he brought them out of Egypt? So that he might be with them and they with him. And so that they would know that he is the Lord. And so that these foreign nations would know that he is the Lord. If he destroys them, that's all lost. That's all gone. Let me encourage you. Pray God's word back to him. Pray his character. Pray his attributes Again, let me encourage you the fourth short the fourth question, the shorter catechism, what is God? If you can just learn the answer to that, you can pray his attributes back to him. This is a, a great model of how you might talk to God is to remind him of his relationship with his people, his promises to the church to be God to them and their children after them and to to that the church that the church will grow and the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against it. So when you fear for the church, remember his promises and pray that back to God. His character, his reputation, his relationship, his work of redemption become the foundations for our prayer. Well, then Moses puts on the other hat and then he has to go and serve as the prophet and bring God's word to the people in verse 15 to 30. That's exactly what he does. And he's specific about their sin. He addresses their guilt. He's he's honest and direct about the things. That they've done wrong, the way the violation of God's revealed will. And even urges them to to give up their rebellion and to renew their commitment to God. Notice verse 20. And we just don't. We just don't have time to get into all this. But in verse 20, he takes the calf. He burns it with fire, grinds it to powder and scatters it on the water and makes the people drink it. Here's your judgment for your guilt. You know, one of the worst things you can do in the world today is to tell someone they're wrong. I can't be wrong. I'm not sure there's anything, any such thing as wrong. I mean, if I'm, if I can sort of create the world I want to create for myself, if, if, if I decide what's true and, and good and certainly what's true and good about me, then, then who are you to tell me? You can't tell me I'm wrong. I mean, I can't, I, there's no such thing. Like, I can't be wrong. As long as I'm faithful to myself. As long as I'm honest about myself. And I'm, I'm committed to myself. Then I, I, there's, I'm not even sure what you mean, wrong. The reality is, that's actually the work of, of church leaders. They may actually come alongside you sometime and go, I'm seeing sin in your life. I'm seeing evidence of rebellion in your life. I'm seeing, I'm, and, and they'll put your arm, put their arm around you and they say, look, here's the thing. You, you're, you're, you're being disobedient. You're being rebellious in this particular 
area. Not against me. Not against us. That doesn't matter. Against, against God. You're, you're breaking God's commands. And it's Moses comes along with, with the same kind of righteous anger that God himself had in this moment. God's anger burned hot against the people. Aaron goes, hey Moses, don't let your anger burn hot against the people. It's the same righteous indignation against sin. The idea of of church discipline is foreign in today's world, and yet it is consistent with what Scripture teaches. But here's the problem. Here's the problem Moses had. Here's the problem that Israel has in in this passage. And that is that Moses isn't good enough. Moses fails. Look at verse 28. Notice what happens in verse 28. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, 3,000 men of the people fell. Moses said, here's the deal. Who's with me? Who's on the Lord's side? That's really the hymn we probably should be singing after we're this. But we're not. Who's on the Lord's side? Who's going to stand? And the, the, the Levites gather around him. We're in. Grab a sword, go. 3,000 people. Not only that, but look down at verse 35. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf. I love this phrase. The one that Aaron made. What other calf was there? But it's that, that very specific pointed reminder, this calf, the one that Aaron made, is just that big a deal. That not only did 3,000 die, but then the Lord sends a plague on the people. We don't know what the plague is. We're not told it doesn't really matter. The point is this. Moses, in his role as the mediator, couldn't stay God's hand of judgment. Moses' intercession, Moses' mediator role, mediatorial role, was only partially effective. God's people at the end of chapter 32 now know we need a mediator because our guilt is great. But we need a greater mediator than Moses. Moses prayed, he appealed, and yet there's still coming judgment. And you're left going, well, then I have to look for someone else. There's only one prophet whose word can actually affect the very change that it demands. There's only one priest who can actually stay God's hand and bring an end to the punishment that our sin deserves. If you're not looking to Christ as your mediator, if you're not looking to Jesus as your intercessor, if you're not looking to Christ as the one who who stands before God and pleads your innocence not based on your innocence, but on having already been dealt the punishment that you deserve. Having already in himself paid the debt that every sin deserves. If you're not looking to Christ, if you're not looking to Jesus as your mediator, you can expect God's great wrath 
in the day of judgment. If you are, you can expect God's grace and love for eternity because the debt that you owe has been paid by the only perfect mediator the Bible ever shows us. Let's pray together. My Father in heaven, we thank you for loving us enough that you would send your son to suffer and bleed and die in our place to pay the debt that our sin deserves to to sit at your right hand and now plead our innocence, not because we actually are innocent, but because the debt is paid by his own blood. Would you, in light of that, in response to that, would you grow in us a hatred for our sin, a a quick recognition of those places where we are guilty of breaking your commands, of violating your revealed will, of replacing you with anything or anyone else? And would you draw us to the cross where that very sin was dealt with was paid for, and would you renew in us a newfound love for obedience. We pray all of this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.